The Constellation, Episode 4, Lockdown. A leafy suburban street in Sheffield. It's a lovely sunny day, but the thick red velvet curtains are still drawn in the first floor flat. The window is open slightly and a breeze blows the curtains, allowing sun to shine in a little. Inside, Gus Patterson is sleeping. His head is under the pillow and he's dreaming. A tall, quiffy man stands in front of him and shouts something so close and loud that his spittle hits Gus's cheek. He grabs Gus by the jacket and pulls him up to peer into his face with a bloodshot right eye. The man is full of anger. Gus feels it. He gasps for air. The man is going to strangle or headbutt. He just hasn't made his mind up yet which. In the distance, there's a kind of whining, screaming sound. Gus opens his mouth, but no sound comes out. He feels a sharp tug, and he and the man tumble into a dark, marshy pool. Gus cries out. Everything goes black. There's a brief burst of sunlight again, and then blackness. Gus feels pain in his nose, his lungs, everywhere. He sees bright lights like bubbles behind his eyelids. One of his arms is free and he starts punching, pushing down, grasping around, trying to get a grip. You could call it thrashing. In fact, this is what it looks like to us, but for Gus who is underwater. Everything happens in slow motion, the peaty water viscous like ketchup. He's floating. He can't feel the man anymore. This is, he thinks, what dying feels like. Suddenly, he feels a pull. He's being pulled back up, up into the light. The light is so bright and there's a ringing in his ears. Gus is now awake and sitting on his bed, 
sweating and panting. He staggers over to the curtain and pulls it open with difficulty. The light is overwhelming and it takes him half a minute to really be able to look outside. What he sees sends him into hyperventilation. Two men, one on the ground, another up a tree on the other side of the street, are cutting branches with a chainsaw. Despite the brightness, his vision clouds. He can feel the anger rising, and it's with great difficulty that he moves away from the window towards his notice board, where he's pinned the following, printed on a piece of white A4 paper. In five seconds. Hold five seconds. Out five seconds. Hold five seconds. Repeat. It takes him a full two minutes to get his breathing back to that calm rhythm but it helps and he's able to sit down on the bed again. He mustn't get carried away, they're just doing their job. Anyway, he can't go out and confront them. His self-isolation over the last couple of weeks has now become a national government instruction. Two years ago, almost to the day, he'd witnessed the same scene through the kitchen window. He'd run down the stairs and out of the front door to discuss with the man with the chainsaw. But the man had climbed further up the ladder, looking at him with wild eyes, and then pulled his phone out, and he started pressing buttons. Gus looked down. In his hand was a large knife. Oh shit, thought Gus. It was a normal Habitat 80s vintage bread knife with a red plastic handle and a handy serrated blade when it was next to the loaf of seeded rye bread in the kitchen. But in the hand of a sweaty, stocky, shouting, bearded, angry man wearing a jellaba over his pyjamas, it didn't look quite so innocent and the tree surgeon had understandably called 999. It was understandable too that the police had reacted promptly and robustly in arresting Gus without the need to deploy a taser, perhaps because Gus's neighbours, Ali and Sem, who'd rushed out to see what was going on, had persuaded him to give up the knife. It was also understandable that the pigs had forced access to Gus's flat and searched it thoroughly, removing a laptop and hard disks. It took three days for Gus to be released, after having been passed from the police cell into a hospital. Thanks to Gus's psychiatrist and a good lawyer who'd pleaded tree-felling trauma, something apparently quite common in Sheffield, he was not even charged. It was a good thing his real computer was installed in Dave's spare room at the time. They'd only found music software in half-finished pop songs. The bastard still hadn't returned his bread knife, though. Fuck, thinks Gus on the bed. Another day of lockdown. What the hell am I going to do?
Toby, his wife Sam and their two kids live at the opposite end of Brussels to Carl. In an apartment built around the same time, not a high rise, but still one with a nice view. From the second floor, they look out over Parc du Den. Toby's drinking coffee on the balcony. From here, you can look up to the Place Altitude 100. Toby assumes it's a hundred meters above sea level or something. On the Place is the most amazing church. Amazing because unlike the other enormous over-the-top basilisks dotted around the city, this one is modernist. Actually, there's another cool one in Molenbeek, but that's a whole world away from the well-to-do green district where they live. This one doesn't look like a church, more like some 1950s socialist progressive architecture, and that's what he likes about it. He needs progressive symbols more and more to counter the glass and steel neoliberal facades of the European district, where he and his wife usually work. Their office has been shut for more than a week now, and they're still trying to get used to it. Another crisis, he thinks, lighting a cigarette and ignoring the screams coming from inside the flat. He wonders which way this one will go. At the moment, the populists are holding their tongues a bit, but who knows what might happen if things got really nasty. He's had a few crises. He takes the global and political personally. The worst was 89 and the fall of the Iron Curtain. For the political schizo that Toby is, it was like a double bind. Anarchist mother says, rejoice for the liberation of the workers over their oppressors. Communist father says, mourn for the death of your dream of socialism. That was the worst, to realize that his dream was built on, well, not exactly lies, but at least completely unfounded projections. He smiles, remembering his arguments about Eastern Europe with Karl back in the day. Turned out Karl had been right, more or less. Although, of course, after the 90s crash course in wild, unregulated capitalism, some Eastern Europeans started to realise what they'd lost. It took him a while to realise that the template for his dream still existed and that it was actually the European Union. Not the actually existing EU, but the EU that it could become. So he moved to Brussels to work for a lefty think tank, then set up on his own as an advisor and lobbyist. His next big crises were the Iraq war and of course Brexit, but he doesn't want to think about that now. There's enough to deal with. He really needs to do some work, but it's so difficult to get people to sit down with each other at the moment, even virtually. He finishes his fag and goes back inside to the mayhem that he's just had five minutes respite from. A small apartment in Salford. 
Des is sitting on a knackered leather sofa in front of the computer. He's been sitting there ever since breakfast, only getting up to make himself a cup of tea. He's supposedly working from home, doing his HR job, checking through timesheets, targets and computer-generated score sheets, basically looking for slackers to fire. But he's multitasking to the max, looking backwards and forwards between his browser on the computer and Twitter and Facebook on his phone. His Google searches over the last half hour. Daily Mail. Prince Charles Corona. Face Masks Manchester. Breitbart. Thugs Mug Nurses. Nurse Videos. Little Online. China Corona Curve. Royal Hallamshire Hospital. St Thomas. NOS. Nine O'Clock Service. Mary Garnet. Mary Garnet Filmmaker. He isn't sure how he's gotten here, really. He'd been trying to understand the epidemic, got distracted by the thought of nurses wearing latex gloves, bought some latex gloves online, as well as a few other things he needed, got back to the epidemic, saw something about cases in Sheffield, looked on the map to remember where the hospital there was, scrolled over the map a bit, found St Thomas's church, and started thinking about Chris, and then Mary, He hasn't thought about her for, well, a really long time. From what he can gather, checking out social media, she's living in Holland, working for some lefty NGO, trying to save the world as always. Lesbian, of course she bloody is. But with a kid, Christ, how did that work? And then, through Facebook, he sees she's still in touch with that black guy, some slick artist nowadays, and with that mental case Gus and what's-his-name, the anarchist stoner. Bastards. He's never really forgiven them, how she'd fucked with his head, how they'd made him look so stupid. And the Reverend Chris, in a way it was all his doing. He got involved when he shouldn't have. But still, there was something about Chris that made Des trust him. If it came down to it, he'd trust him again today, even after everything that had happened. On the one hand, Des is worried about the virus. On the other, he doesn't have much of a social life these days since Vicky kicked him out, so isolating isn't a problem. He's excited too, because he thinks about the changes that a crisis like this could bring. All that talk about Brexit and taking back control, it was just fucking talk. But just in a few weeks, look, the borders were closed, the police were on top of things again, people saw foreigners and immigrants for what they really were. He's been reading the conspiracy theories, but the idea that the virus is some kind of plot visited on the West by the usual suspects is simply giving the enemy too much credit. In fact, it could be the thing that will save us, our culture. It's going to be the survival of the fittest. All we've been saying is this pandemic is real, it's global, and this will get pretty bad, so prepare and enjoy the show, he'd read on one of his favourite sites. And it looked like Caucasians were slightly less susceptible to infection, from the figures he was looking at anyway. Was it genetics? 
Basically, it was just important to keep healthy, to keep aware of what was going on, to follow the news and be ready for action. He needed to remember to exercise. Shame that the gym was shut. But then, he hadn't bargained about thinking about Sheffield. That was all so long ago. It was even ages since he'd been over the Pennines. It was Manchester, Birmingham, Wales, sometimes London, but Sheffield was definitely off his list. Jim isn't locked down at all. Jim is at work, wearing scrubs with a disposable gown and apron, a surgical mask and orange snorkeling goggles. They've run out of the real thing, so he brought his own. He's on the front line, as they keep saying on TV. Jim hates these kinds of metaphors. He's been suspicious of them ever since reading Susan Sontag, except that that was the other way round, illness as metaphor. Calling it a war is counterproductive, something that quickens the pulse of the media and the politicians, Boris wanting his Churchill moment. It's been proven that the use of the war metaphor really doesn't help the patients, and right now it's inaccurate. It's more like being in a bloody sinking hospital ship trying to plug the leaks, He was in a meeting 20 minutes ago in the manager's office. She was in tears knowing that there wasn't enough protective clothing for the nurses. He told her that it's not her fault, and of course she knows it, but still, she's the one responsible for the ward. Everyone is so incredibly nervous. The strangest thing is coming to work. Normally, the entrance to the hospital is full of worried relatives people trying to cheer themselves up in the cafe, an endless stream of random A&E cases. For the last few days it's been nothing but empty corridors. Only the intensive care department is rammed day and night. He's only been dressed up for about three minutes and he's boiling already. He's shed a couple of pounds this week already. At least he doesn't need to go and play squash. He couldn't anyway, he remembers. At this point, no one who works in the hospital has died of the virus. Jim knows that it's only a question of time. Some are in self-isolation. Why don't they get the testing sorted, he thinks. That would end so much uncertainty. For all Jim knows, he might be infected himself, and therefore his family and his colleagues. Come on, he thinks. Get it together, guys. He finds the others from the team and starts on his rounds. It's going to be a long day. And the narrator, me, I'm sitting here, locked down, still trying to feel my way into the characters, reading these sketchy scripts 
digging up faded memories, old notebooks, listening through my archives of sound recordings, receiving contributions from friends, feeling my way back into the past while trying to keep up with the here and now, because this story also takes place in the present, from now on almost in real time, and none of us know what the future holds for us. I hope that the characters, that all of us, make it through alive. In The Hague, Mary is sitting on a bed with her laptop on her knee. She's trying to follow a Zoom conversation with five other people. It's frustrating. In an important discussion, missing just one word can cause such huge misunderstandings, especially when most of the participants aren't speaking their native language. She's been sitting here for 40 minutes now and she really needs to go to the loo. She can hear Janneke teaching in the next room giving her pupils a new assignment. At least Tim has his own room, where he's supposed to be studying for his exams, which have just been cancelled, or not, no one knows exactly. The meeting is just drawing to a close when Tim comes in, gesturing in sign language. Mary shows him three fingers for three minutes and tries to concentrate on the wrapping up, otherwise it's going to turn into a game of charades where she's bound to lose. At last, Mary clicks to leave the meeting and smiles at Tim, who's scowling like the teenager he is. Mom, he stage whispers, I've got to go out. My back hurts. I need some exercise. I need some air. Okay, but don't. I'll just go out on my bike. Through the dunes or something. But it's almost five already. Look, if you're not back for dinner, we won't wait. We'll just keep something for you. Okay, great. See you. Mary knows better than to repeat, don't meet friends, don't hang out too closely with people. At 6.30, Mary sends Tim a text. At 7.30, she looks at the parents' WhatsApp group, spying on their kids. Some of them even track the younger ones. Privacy, she thinks. She sees that Tim's friend Peter is missing too, so they probably went off somewhere together. Mary's annoyed, but not worried. At 9pm she gets a call from Harold, Peter's dad. Hi Mary. Did you hear from them? Now, don't get angry, but they're at a police station. Well, I guess they've been arrested. Jesus, for what? Graffiti. I think the agent said. I'm going to go there now. Shall I pick you up? Mary goes to stand in the street. Some neighbours are having loud conversations from one side of the street to the other. Harold arrives on his bike. Down the police station, the officer shows Mary Tim's phone. There's a video of him and Peter. They're spraying Extinction Rebellion logos all over a Shell petrol station. After much talk and an hour of waiting around, they're let go with a warning and a possible damages claim hanging in the air. 
The police seem more worried about them having broken the social distancing laws. On the way home, Tim cycles next to Mary, not saying a word, just glaring. When he gets home and realises they're alone in their kitchen, it comes out. Mum, you didn't defend me at all, Mum. You're always giving off of the police, calling them pigs, and now you just smiled at him. Would it have helped, do you think, asks Mary, if I'd called him a Nazi? No, but you were you were flirting with the agent, the police officer. Flirting? I was just trying to defuse the situation. You're not even... Not even what? Young? Attractive? Single? Hetero? Never mind. Anyway, you're the one always telling me it's important to protest. And everyone's like forgotten about it since Corona turned up. What were you doing to stop climate change when we were vandalising a petrol station? Asks Mary. Yeah. Well, actually, Mary explains, I was having an online meeting with the Ministry of Environment today. Which one? Tim is suspicious. Both, actually. The UK and the Dutch. We're trying to push them to commit to some actions before they forget it all. A crisis like the virus is a great opportunity for people to do bad stuff. Or, more likely to avoid doing the good stuff. Extinction Rebellion and the Youth for Climate thing was so important, putting the issues on the table, getting the politicians to commit, and now, if we don't keep the pressure on... But that was what me and Peter were doing, keeping the pressure on. You keep going on about how direct action is so important. Tim, says Mary, you know, when I was younger, I thought that action protest were the most important, but I guess I found out, what, that you were becoming a Tory? Tim, you know that that's the worst insult you can throw at me, right? No, but what I mean is there's a level of the world that just carries on. The deep state, beyond politics, beyond protests. The world is run by civil servants and also there's this whole bunch of people with so much money that they can just buy their way out of anything. So, just blow them up. So, diplomacy is important, said Mary. We have to keep the pressure on in lots of different parallel ways. We've got to be political and ecological and ethical and creative and diplomatic. No one can do that all at once, says Tim. No, love, that's called the division of labour. So I'll keep on playing the diplomat and you can carry on with graffiti. Just don't. Don't get caught again. We thought, said Tim, it was an automatic petrol station. There's no one there. And it's hanging full of cameras, you idiots. You really need to watch out. You really need to plan things carefully, especially now when there's all this shit going on. Did you read that book that I gave you from Extinction Rebellion? No, not yet. Right, says Mary. That's your homework for tomorrow then. Thank you.